Invisible Threads, a Go Loud original. I'm James O'Hagan, and from LGBT Ireland, this is Invisible Threads, a Go Loud original podcast. You can find out more information about LGBT Ireland and the work which we do for older members of the LGBTQ community on our website, lgbt.ie. In this episode, I'm speaking with Lucia, a 74-year-old activist originally from Cork who has lived in Manchester since the early 60s. With her slim frame standing at no more than 4 foot 11, it's incredible to think that this Irish woman, who fled to the UK as a teenager when it was discovered she was a lesbian, would through pure determination and belief in the importance of fairness, go on to change the face of her adopted home city of Manchester. The impact she has had is hard to overstate. She co-founded the Gay Liberation Front, opened the city's first women's refuge, launched a radical queer printing press and organised demonstrations in defiance of Margaret Thatcher's repressive anti-LGBT legislation. In 2020, she was honoured at the Pride of Manchester Awards with a Lifetime Achievement Award for her work as a campaigner for LGBT and women's rights in the city. As I've gotten to know more about her past, I can't help but feel it's remarkable she is not better known here. Lucia has joined a few online events I've been part of over the past year, and she drops into the weekly online coffee morning we have for older LGBTQ people from time to time. I've got to know her as a calm and unassuming presence, but once you get her talking, she's a compelling storyteller. Despite all she's done, she's not keen on the limelight, and says that everyone who knows her knows she'd rather be sitting in the back of the room having a listen. She loves to hear people talking about their successes. I started by asking Lucia about her early life in Cork. The only thing I know about myself is uh, my life started in a, in a Magdalen home in Besborough in Cork. And apparently I was there for four years. I obviously didn't know that. All I ever remember is um, green and cream walls, stairs and uh, corridors and being outside in a little garden. At, uh, I didn't know whether, I never knew whether it was the front or the back. And the other thing I recall is clacking of rosary beads and nuns everywhere. Uh, My grandmother came and took me out of there to her home uh, with her family when I was four. And I I kind of went to the age of uh, four to to, uh, 14 thinking she was my mother and my grandfather was my dad. But the the, the next thing I remember was my sister told me that um, I had to go in under the bed uh, when I was brought home from uh, Cork so that um, the brothers couldn't see me because everyone was so ashamed. Basically, they were hiding me in the house. Anyways, when I was five, I was sent to school and I'm frightened to death of nuns. Uh, I remember my brother and sister taking me down to school and uh, walked me up the steps. And when I walked into this classroom, I suddenly seen a nun at the top of the classroom and I came out in a cold sweat. And I I just, uh, that was the beginning of uh, my very, very bad nerves. She started teaching everybody in the class and I couldn't, I couldn't, I was, I went kind of numb. Uh, I didn't know really why I was there. Nobody ever spoke to me or explained anything to me. I was just suddenly in this place and there was nuns there again. And she and she was trying to make me knit. And I hadn't seen outside the convent <laughs> and I was only five. And, yeah. But I'll never forget this. It, it, it taught me a lesson. I couldn't knit for the life of me, no matter how I did. And everyone around the class was laughing at me and I was getting all muddled up. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the end, uh, she made me sit there all day until I knitted part of a sock. 
she said, I want you to knit a pair of a sock with um, a heel on. I said, okay. So the girl next to me in the class was showing me. She came down. She hit me a belt of a big stick, a big thick stick right across the hands and said, I was asked me whether I stupid. This is in front of all the class. That was my beginning of my journey in school. Mm. And it got worse after that. You've mentioned to me outside of the recording for this that you, you suffer from dyslexia. So that obviously that was that manifesting. Yes, you're absolutely, uh, that's absolutely correct. Because when I went back to school then in the class, I was a little bit of a laughing stock. I couldn't learn uh, in the way that, you know, they were all learning. So I was known as, as, as stupid and, and the dunce. What year or what time would this have been? Actually? Well, now let me see. I was born in 1947 and this was all happening between five and six. So, so 51 you, or 52 kind there of. There you go. That's it. So anyways, I was uh, starting to toughen up uh, streetwise anyway in the playground and stuff because um, I started when anybody was having a go at me or laughing at me. You know the little gangs in schools, you know, they're very cruel to people yeah. and uh, stuff like that. But that didn't put me down. What it did was it toughened me up, made me angry. You know, if anyone started on me, you know, I wouldn't hit him, but I'd tear him be the back of the head when they turned yeah. around and pulled him down backwards and then run for my life because I was only little. I'm only, uh, what am I now? Four foot seven or something I am. So I went off up into the next class. Now, normally all the dunces would be sat at the back of the class. But this teacher called Mrs. Ryan took me to the front of the class and I nearly died. I said, no, love. I said, I'm supposed to go to the back. And she said, no. In my class, you're coming to the front. So I said, oh, okay. So I was sat there with all these ones that was the head of the class. You know, they, they were the bee's knees. I was as happy as a pig and shit in that class because I started to excel. And she used to talk to me every day uh, after school about what I liked to do and what I didn't like to do. And so I said, I don't know what I'd like to do. I said, I, I knew nothing about myself. You know, I didn't know who I was, what I was. I was just there trying to, you know, get by as you do. So then one day she says to me, is there anything, she said, that you ever dreamed about liking to do? And I said, um, I like to tell stories, which I did because I used to all, and I realised when I was young, what got me through was making bloody stories, fantasy stories up in my head. Mm-hmm. She said, tell me about the fancy, the fancy story. I told her about the, this um, old woman that was a bitter old bitch, yeah? And, uh, and she had a beautiful big garden and all the poor kids around had no garden, not to play in. So she turned around and she said, right, tell me the whole story. This was after class. She wrote it all out. And then she says, we're going to take, you know, they have them fetishes. I don't know whether they still do for schools. But the story ended up being accepted by the Theatre Isle of Mortward, yeah, uh, for our school. And of course, the school was so proud, it was unbelievable. Anyway, we won the festival. A couple of months later, Television asked Mrs. Ryan if perhaps... Uh, I'd like a scholarship to go to drama school. But Mrs. Ryan sent a man up to my house, these people, when they came, uh, my grandmother. She said, that whoremaster's uh, child won't be going out of this house up there because she can't be trusted to be on her own out there in the world. Yeah. She did, she bet the shit out of me after that. Mrs. Ryan, that school teacher, never spoke to her from that day till the day she died. Going on in tangent with all this, I suppose, the, the early 50s, were you aware as you were sort of developing into your teens that there was a, a difference in the way that you were relating to fancying girls or, or anything like that? Or, or was that something that was so completely out of 
the ballpark that it just wasn't even something that you were aware of? In them days, you, you could go in the afternoon to the pictures mm-hmm. and there was Audrey Hepburn and Shirley MacLaine in this picture called The Loudest Whisper. It was in black and white. Story was a love story between the pair of them. That's when I realised that I wasn't fancying Audrey Hepburn, but I certainly was fancying Shirley MacLaine. And that was the first time I ever became aware. And then after that, then I started thinking to myself, you know, would, would I be feeling the same now toward, but I'd never seen anyone that I felt that way about, you know. Yeah. And then one day I was going down the street. There weren't many cars on the road at that time, but one nearly knocked this young man over uh, crossing the road and I grabbed her and she was shaking. She said, I thank you very much and all that. But I said, I've never seen you before. No, she said, I'm from the Protestant school. And I said, oh, right. What she was doing down our town, the main street, I don't know, because they all went shopping in Mortford. <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> That was the beginning of a little romance between us. There was no sex, but with no sex or kissing or anything like that, we couldn't uh, meet up So uh, it, it down the town. So we used to go off over the coast road for walks uh, sometimes, and I'd meet her over there. Then what happened was this. I uh, came out of school one day, and she was down the road waiting on me. She came up, and she, she, she just pushed a little envelope uh, into my school bag. And I said, oh, I said, what's that? And she said, oh, it's just that I wrote you something. And I said, oh, yeah, OK. So so anyways, I went home and just still in my school bag. And I forgot about it. My brother went and started rooting in the bag and found this letter, opened it. And of course, it was a little kind of a love letter. And she'd signed it and everything. Oh, Jesus. All hell broke loose in the house. All hell. I got the baiting of a lifetime. So anyways, um, I heard her talking to daddy. I used to call him Mammy and Daddy. I heard her talking to Daddy about that young one's going to have to go somewhere and be put away because she's going to bring more shame on us now than ever. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. As yes. if we're not shamed enough. So, you know, when a child overhears a conversation like that, I thought, oh, Mother of Jesus. I knew what she was talking about. She was talking about the lunatic asylum. Well, I thought to myself, I got to get out of there. I have to get out of this house. Are you with me? Yeah. Because I knew I was going to be sent away. To cut a long story short, I packed my bags because I thought, I'm going to die in this house. I really am going to die in this house. I think I was 14, 15. So I packed my bags, went down the town on my bike, got on the train in Mortward, went up to Dublin, got on the boat. I don't know how I got on the boat. I think I snuck on. And so I ended up walking the streets of Manchester. I went down from, it was like in Rochdale way, and I went down then to the streets of Manchester because I'd overheard that there was places in Manchester for queers. I yeah. didn't know what a queer was, but someone explained to me. So I made my way to that pub in Manchester to see if I could meet people like myself. With all of the trauma that was going on with your family and trying to find a place where you belonged and where you could actually just be safe, yeah. did the queer identity stuff just be like, I, I don't even have time to be concerned about what's going on with that? No, I had to put it to the back of my head because I had to deal with it. It's like going to the coal face. Are you with me? Yeah. And just digging out the coal as best as you can to earn earn a living and stay safe and pay your bills type of thing it was a safety yeah. thing. So I had to deal with that. But when I went into bed in the night, you know, then I could allow myself to think of the whole gay thing. Yeah. As a lot of children do and think to themselves, you know, I wonder what it would be like to kiss a woman type of a thing. Yeah. But I never envisaged meeting anyone else like myself. I thought it would be a hard thing to do. I couldn't even afford to think about that in that context. I just yeah. left life on food that way because I was too busy trying to keep myself safe. 
So um, I made my way anyway to Manchester. But I was homeless. I, I had no place to live or anything like yeah. that. So I lived rough for about, I was about a year and a half, getting little jobs, uh, going down to the station, sleeping there at night where I met other youngsters that was LGBT, all after coming out of care homes and stuff. Now, this is the, 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 the very early 60s, it's yeah. still coming out of the 50s mentality. And so I met a lot of kids like myself. And uh, we'd all congregate outside the union because we couldn't go in because we were all underage. We slept rough with Jesus, the cold in the night. I'll never forget it. It was terrible. But we all used to huddle together, you know what I'm saying? So there was sort of a community uh, in, in a way. Yeah, and it was still in the sort of what they describe as the gay district. Just because I, I suppose Manchester, it, it has a very vibrant and active gay community and today would have probably one of the biggest and, and most concrete kind of gay communities in the UK. Was it like that at the time? even though it would have been underground? And, and was it sort of whereabouts was the, the bar that you were going to? Was it, was it on Canal Street as we would know it today? Or was the gay district somewhere else in, in those days? No, it was on Canal Street. In those days, of course, you know, the police were constantly coming in there and arresting people because in those days, for the lads, uh, if they came into the pub and they saw two lads holding hands, that the two lads would be taken out by the police and arrested. As I got older, I got a little, I'll tell you now, I, I got a little uh, job washing the dishes behind the bar. And that's when I started to realise uh, what oppression was and what was going on. Are you with me? The terrible oppression, especially with the lads. I felt sorry for them. I was starting to realise uh, the politics of being gay yeah now yeah. I was only a kid but I was you know I was so used to getting the, the shit kicked out of myself to see other people get it just yeah. infuriate me I suppose even seeing the way that those children and yourself and those children were, were treated and the freedom with which authority sort of dismissed them did that kind of create in you that desire to help people I don't think I thought along those lines if you if you if you, if you understand me it, it was to me it was sort of something that just was natural for me you see when someone's beating you up and putting you down in, in a context all your life you don't look at yourself and think oh that's you know something that happened to me so I'm going to do something about it. it was the idea of seeing someone physically being beaten it just incensed me something happened to me and I thought you bastards I'd been used to people putting me down and beating me down and I was I didn't re- I had no words uh, I had no words all I did was feel 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 for for other people fucking well incensed me to see that on other people because I knew then what I suffered so I was thinking to myself they must be the same as me and then I thought we're all the same and I thought I became totally incensed and I wouldn't take no for an answer off of anyone Mm -hmm. I didn't give a shit and I thought to myself I am never going to feel that I have to be grateful to anybody because I'd learned by now if you can't share a bag of chips with somebody without wanting something for the few chips you've given that's a bad person. It's not a cool person. Share yes. your chips. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> We're all hungry. <laughs> So I suppose you you went on to meet um, the woman who had become your partner both, I suppose, in terms of your your activism and your partner in life in that Manchester scene and start working towards, particularly like around women's issues. How, yeah. how did that come about? She was my partner for two years, but she remained my friend for life and yeah. she still is. So anyways, I was down in the club one night and I was just getting very, very tired of it all. Mm. But I think now I must have been uh, uh, getting very depressed because yeah. of what I was seeing. Kids being beat, the lads being thrown into the canal street and stuff with the police. It was terrible dark times. I was sitting there anyway, uh, really fed up and pissed off thinking, you know, w- will this awful thing ever end with everything around me and see people suffering the way they were suffering? I overheard a conversation at the next table with uh, three or four women. 
I didn't. I, I just picked up on one or two things, but my vocabulary wasn't very uh, uh, wide, as they say, or whatever, because I had a very narrow vocabulary and I wasn't an intellectual in the school and was shite. So, but I did hear some words that I said, I said, it's an interest. I said, conversation you're having, girls. I said, can I sit and have a listen? Tell me what you're talking about. So they started telling me, and I said, what's oppression mean? You know, mm-hmm. and what does this mean? And what's an MP? What's a councillor? Uh, what does a prime minister mean? I knew nothing whatsoever ever about anything. Well, I thought to myself, this is grand. And I said, and can you actually get things done and change things that way? And they were saying, well, yes, we could do, you know. And I said, where have you got all this from? And they were telling me that they were students at the university. And then I started asking this particular one, uh, which was, of course, Angela. And she started explaining everything to me in plain language uh, because her accent wasn't as posh as the rest of them. And Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, she talks my language. So I, I ended up the whole night having a conversation with her then about this and that and the other. And by the end of it, we were we were great pals. Mm-hmm. And I, I says to her, you know, is there any chance I said we could stay pals? Tell us when you're coming in again. I'd love to have more conversations with you. And she did. And we stayed friends. And that was how I became politicized. And the more I became politicized, the more incensed and the more anger I got when I think to myself that this is all coming from the state. Are you with me? I thought, you know, Maybe we could turn this thing around and do stuff, you know, or see what we can do. That one conversation yeah. turned my whole life around. And that is the truth. You would have been coming up through the, the 60s, 70s, 70s, 80s, which would have been yeah. a very, like a very tough time to be starting mm. that kind of a conversation and that sort of a, that sort of a movement in the yeah. UK, I mean, I mean, in Ireland as well, but in the UK uh, where you were. Can you tell me a bit about, I suppose, those days of getting organised? Well, um, for me, it was exhilarating because I now realised that I, I was a human being and that I, had, I, I should be respected as a person and a human being. And so I was delighted with that just on its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I'd be recognised as a, as an individual and someone that could make some sort of a contribution. And we had to strike the first match somehow by creating a conversation with the people of Manchester. There was one lad that was working on uh, the media, but uh, he used to give us a, a little tilt and tell mm-hmm. us when uh, all the bigots were coming on the television uh, on a debating programme in the night, and he always used to make sure that... Um, uh, myself and Angela was uh, planted in that audience you with me so it yes. was all little things like that it started off as and that's when we started to form GLF which was Gay Liberation Front and that's how Manchester in fact became the big hub you went on to, to I suppose, use media and publications really effectively to start spreading the, the message around the oppression of women and the women within the queer community. So how, how did that come about? Well, that came about uh, because uh, of the TV show we went on um, in the evenings, I think, because some of these uh, reporters and things were starting to realise that there was a big wave coming up within the LGBT community mm-hmm. and they would need contacts. And so they needed to start picking people out you would meet to uh, interview and talk to it and that's how we got on uh, even more tv programs and every time you know we had our little t- speeches ready you know what I me mean? without frightening the horses too much we put our case across talking about equality and how uh, oppression can uh, stop people from uh, flourishing in life we kept it all nice and plain myself and angela you see and of course you know the whole uh, journey was outing the oppression of women as we went forward with women's aid and everything mm-hmm. and having women's uh, phone lines for for help 
And then people, a lot of people were coming out of the closet, so to speak, by this time, journalists and everything, female and male journalists, yeah. uh, saying, this is not right. You know what I mean? These people have a, have a, have a point here. While everyone's experience is different and everyone's journey through life is unique, there are a common set of issues which we all face at different times or which impact certain groups of people at different times in their lives. I chatted with clinical psychologist and head of the Department of Psychology at St. Vincent's University Hospital, Dr. Paul Dalton, about a few of these more common issues, how they affect people, where they have come from and what we can do to confront them. Queer spaces arose as places where LGBTQ people can experience a greater sense of security and safety. Throughout history, they've acted as spaces for community building, activism and refuge for a severely isolated population. Paul spoke to me about how important it is to have these spaces where you can let your guard down without fear of judgment or discrimination and why these spaces are so vital. Outside of the safe space Outside of the place where I can feel at ease, I'm, I'm very often afraid. And that's because at some level, my survival may be under threat. And, and that is the case for many LGBT people in this country and certainly in other parts of the world still. So we get fearful around certain things and that's appropriate because it keeps us on high alert and it keeps us safe. But the human brain, you know, the human heart and the human brain was never supposed to be fearful all the time. So we found places to go where we could actually relax, let the shoulders down and where the nervous system could actually begin to soften. And that is so, so important that we have moments in our day or our lives where I feel safe. And when we feel safe, the nervous system settles down. But for many of us who grow up in a world that we don't feel at home in, fully at home in, fully safe in, we end up with a kind of a generalized anxiety. Who's going to notice? You know, who's judging me? Will I be seen? Will I be found out? Now, we really carry that in the body and in the mind. So, so those safe spaces um, are so necessary, are so necessary to give us an opportunity in some ways to let the guard down, to open the heart as well. In addition to the Women's Aid phone line, you also were operating a, a refuge in Manchester for women. Yes, well, how that happened was, of course, uh, we had the phone line and the police was uh, bringing uh, women to the door in the nights because there was no place for women uh, with little children that had been beaten uh, to go. And uh, the police used to turn up at the women's centre and ask if we'd take them in. It was an advice centre. So to cut a long story short, we set up the first Women's Aid here in the northwest, and it was the second in the country. We're basically a group of us. Um, we had so many women living at the women's centre with children. It was packed in the end. And we thought, no, we've got to do something about this. This is absolutely ridiculous. And so one of the women said, it's a shame, she said, because there's been a house uh, up, two doors up from me has been locked up for, for months. And it's a big five-bedroomed house or six-bedroomed house, a massive it was, next door. And uh, I said, where's that? So she told me. And I said, oh, right, OK. I said, let's go and have a look at it. I only went up and had a look at it. And I said to Angela, what we could do? I said, boot this door in. I said, and we'd plant the women in there and then we'll stand in front of the door and we'll call them. 
African media. So Angela said, well, let's call the council first and ask them if they'll give us a grant. <laughs> so we called them and then we asked for a grant. And as you do, and we went through the whole business. We planned it. And uh, of course they refused. We said, you know then that there's women uh, with no place to go. The police can't find places for them. And they're walking the streets with the police in the night. They're sleeping in jails and everything and left out the next morning. And you haven't got the money to open up somewhere safer and to go. Fantastic. So we says, okay. So anyway, a group of us went up there then and we kicked the bloody door in with a sledgehammer and changed the locks as you do and then we called the media we called Granada and we called BBC which was the two main stations then mm. and uh, the next minute um, little parcels started uh, arriving with food and everything on the doorstep and uh, money was thrown through the letterbox you know to, to buy whatever the children needed and then a woman arrived this is months later now we're still at it and the woman arrived at the house and she uh, asked to come in and she talked about the fact that she'd like to uh, purchase the house and, and give it uh, to us to create uh, women's aid which was what we wanted once you had a women's aid then we were able to apply for a grant you see and the town hall couldn't turn us down but it took them a long time and a few television programs more to get them yeah. to do that <laughs> we made sure it was known that we were uh, looking for our grant yeah. and so we, we started hopping on the telly and when when would this would have been the late 70s would it yeah this was all through the 70s and into the 80s I suppose it sounds like as if there was a great momentum of organising both for yourself and the women's movement and then the men were doing their things separately how did that change into the 80s when AIDS brought such a huge negative uh, sort of attention to the LGBT community. I know women wouldn't necessarily have been sort of impacted by that that, that stigma quite mm. so much, but it must have you must have felt an impact in, in I suppose the receptiveness of people to to cover LGBT issues positively. Yes, well, uh, exactly. And so myself and Angela um, organised uh, talks uh, around that and asked uh, you know how we could help in any shape, way, or form. But I think what drove uh, all of us with the uh, HIV thing was that the the horrible things that it was happening to the lads. Uh, we were all very incensed about that. Anyways, they organised the march and uh, we all took our part. I was a steward on the march because yeah. I had a mouth on me by then because uh, the Socialist uh, Workers Party were devils for uh, creating mayhem on marches. So yeah. I was put in charge of keeping them at bay. <laughs> <laughs> which which I did and I'd forgotten all about but I heard another webcast or whatever you call him a woman saying that she'll never forget when the uh, that march took part and the Socialist Workers Party uh, here in Manchester was all uh, stayed back on the march and then they, they all ran forward and uh, I could hear them all come and running behind me as a steward and I got right into the middle of the march and I said if one of you I said think you're going to pass me I said you another can think coming you with me and I and I made myself as big as possible. I stood there with Jesus like Jesus on the cross. You with me? Anyway, they all stopped. And I'd forgotten all about that till I heard it on a, a webcast. Yeah. So I, I become kind of very brave then and I was uh, I, I was I loved who I was by then, you know, and I was um I'd really gained uh, to love myself a lot and respect yeah. myself. And I thought, you know, for those that doesn't uh, and, and didn't and never gave me a chance, I feel sorry for you. To this day, I, I I love myself to bloody bits. I don't think I'm a bad person, but I haven't got a big head. I suppose within yourself then at that at that period of time, like you were very staunchly yourself and you, as you said, you, you loved yourself and you had you had come to really kind of like value who you were. Yes. Where were you, I suppose, in relation then to your Irishness within your identity? Or had you just cut ties? Oh, I couldn't relate. I I, I couldn't relate. I, before I say anything about that, can I just say in any event, you'll always find me sitting in the back of the room yeah. trying to make myself as small as possible, especially if I know someone's going to bring me up. I'd rather sit in the back 
back of the room and have a listen to everyone, you know, and enjoy listening to everyone talking about their little successes. But when it comes to me, I, I, I kind of put my head down. How did it feel to receive the, the Pride of Manchester Award then for, for someone who, who likes to sort of shun the, the spotlight and doesn't um, look for celebration or, you know, um, adulation? There's a little part of me, I suppose, uh, that still feels unworthy. And um, how could they give a prize to me when there were so many doing the same things attitude? Yeah. Are you with me? Yes. Um, it should have been somebody else that got this prize because it's, a lot of people have done a lot of things. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a little part of me thinks maybe I've robbed it off someone else. It can feel kind of awkward, especially, I suppose, if, if embedded you in you at, at an early age, is this sense that sort of, you know, you're, you're, you're not worth a damn. That's a, a very hard kind yeah. of place to move past and yeah, it's always going to yeah. it's always going to feel awkward when someone says oh my god you've done these amazing things yeah that little voice that's been planted in your head from when you were four yeah. five being sent home from school is going to see and mm. be like oh no you're not you know and it, mm. it, it must be a very difficult thing to try and move past but here's how i get past all of that is this is the voice in my head says this happened to you Lou. don't let this happen to that person in front of you yes because that's what's happening and yeah. that's what drives me. And yeah. that's what keeps me going. I, I think to myself in my head, well, I can't fight for myself, but I can certainly do something for you, mate. And Absolutely. that's the voice I hear all the time. I could never do it for myself, but I can certainly do it for you. The idea of anyone striking anyone because of who they were or, or put them down in any shape, way or form, that incenses me. Yeah. Unfairness is incenses me and to jump back to i suppose your your sense of irishness which i know you've reconnected with a little bit more in the last number of years i've connected with the lgbt community uh, in ireland yes and uh, and some of them i've made good friends with yeah and uh, yesterday for the first time i went on talking to the uh, older boulder uh, thing i went on there for the first time and i'm going to go on regular now because i love listening to their lovely little stories and things are you with me and listening all about where they live and suddenly that sparked something up in me now yesterday uh, because I did I did go home once or twice uh, uh, over the over the years and I yeah. ended up running out of it running out of it for all the same bloody reasons are you with me I never stayed very long only a couple of weeks or so or maybe a m- couple of months and I ran out of it again so I did dip my foot in the water over the years but it's different now um, since I've gone home and, and seen all the big changes. Now, you see, I'm I'm admiring all the crowd at home for what all the crowd at home did. They're, yes. all, everyone at home in the LGBTQI community are now my heroes and heroines. Yeah. I really mean that. So, And this is why I'm starting to be getting more and more attached to them all because, you know, that is so much bravery uh, to what they all did and what, and, and, uh, and, and what they, they done over there. Do you know what I'm saying? Against yeah. all the bloody odds. What do you think the LGBT community and mainstream society needs to understand about the experience of older LGBT people? Well, older people have their memories and a lot of their memories isn't great. And it's the oppression of uh, things around them when they were young that they bring into their old age, even though they're looking out the window now and they see someone walking down the street with a banner or a badge that says I'm gay. They're still sat in that little house and things have changed. I'm going to make you laugh now. But yeah. we become the same as every other little old person. Are you with me? Sat there on her arse, <laughs> looking out the window. Are you with me? There's, there's that whole aging thing on its own. Yeah. But you, you look at the isolation. Uh, we're so used to being around uh, a lot of nice, dancey, happy, clappy people. Our culture is very, very different because of our oppression. We miss all the crack in the crowd. 
And we really have no one now to have those conversations with. And there's where the loneliness can set in if you're isolated. You can be isolated living in a, in a row of houses. And so this is what I'm involved in right now, actually, is that very question. Have you ever heard of Hillsproud? I, I have. It's, a, it's sort of a, a queer housing project, isn't it? Correct. It's not just a project. It's a national, uh, national organisation that looks into LGBT housing in general and the treatment of LGBT people within housing and pushing all that forward and pushing everything forward. So here's it's made up of uh, CEOs, managers, tenants, everybody that's gay, that's working in housing. It doesn't matter whether you're at the top or the bottom, they're all leading the charge. And that's what I'm doing now. I'm um, working my socks off, fighting for the old LGBT community for, you know, safe places to live and to get programs and sit on programs where all they're all respected and they're yeah. not isolated anymore. But what I want to see is an older people's uh, village uh, for extra care for uh, the LGBT community. And that's going to happen here in Manchester soon but it's affordable and I'm worried about that now so I have another fight on me hands because I can't afford the affordable as they say and so I want to know what's going to happen to somebody like me there's thousands of us here and so I've started again I've um, this is my last fight now <laughs> well I think you probably said that about previous fights as well <laughs> no, no this is the last one now because poor LGBT people now are at the bloody bottom of the ladder and I'm not having it just two more quick things I want to ask before before we finish up um yeah. the first is the the girl who who popped the nose in your bag did you yeah. ever did you ever reconnect with her yeah we always kept in touch even after because I knew where she lived and stuff like that so I did keep in touch and every year when I went home I used to always go and see her we stayed great friends up until she, she passed away but we stayed great friends for a long time but neither of uh, her family or, or, or my family ever knew we were, we were great friends we kept it a secret because by now you see I was well out of the closet and yeah. she just couldn't come out of the closet for all her own little reasons and I understood that yes. but we did stay great friends and she stayed at home and, and played the game and done the status courting the choice that so many people had no had no choice but to make because yeah. you weren't in a world where you got to be that's right who you, who you were which is such yes. a shame and it takes an enormous amount of bravery to have both come out and been who you are and yeah. decided that you were going to give up on that opportunity to to, to try and like keep yes. yourself safe um, yes. and that's something that I do think that those people in our community who who didn't get to come out and didn't get yes. to, to live the life that they, they they may have wanted to live I think that they, they sometimes get written off or forgotten about because yes. we focus so much on the people who did come out yes. um, that it's it's important to to remember them and the lives that they had and that yes. there was value in, in yes. those experiences. The last thing I'm going to ask you was like what what are your your hopes for the future well you know uh, young people find it hard to engage with older people anyway and i understand that you know so i think older people in general uh, need to be connected with uh, people like themselves mm-hmm. and uh, the lgbt community this is what, what i think is very very important we must stop isolation we should always try to reach out for each other especially as we're going forward into our own day because you can be talking to a young person until you're blue in the face about being old that they're living their lives now just as we did when we were young you know we didn't want to know the older generation uh, back then even so why would we that change now but it could change if uh, we started telling our stories and what we went through and use something to connect them up with if you understand me Uh, to talk about politics and to never turn your back on that because it could all change at the stroke of a pen so our history and her story and um, the whole LGBTQI story 
uh, both in England and in Ireland, is very important for young people to learn from because it could happen again very, very easily. And so therefore, it would be really good for us all to be engaging. But unfortunately, everyone is still dancing in the streets and there's nothing wrong with doing that. But I hope they're not woken up sadly one day and find that the world around them has changed again. Yeah. And so therefore, awareness, awareness, awareness is the key to this never happening again. Is there one particular thing out of, I suppose, your career of activism that you are proudest of? I'm proud of everything. Yeah. I c- couldn't pick one thing because, you see, everything is connected. There's nothing separate here. Yeah. Everything in life is connected. And so my journey would be connection, connection, connection as I was walking down that path. You know, yeah. you do. You make a little leap forward, then you make a little giant leap forward, and before you know where you are, you've made all these leap forwards, and now you find yourself an old person. And what I'm thinking now is, I'm so happy to just be safe, be alive, and well. Yeah. Just like any other older person. Yeah. I'm just so happy to have me health and still have me gob, and still have opinions. Yeah, and stay active in my head. Sometimes it's hard to be active with the body, but I'm still moving around the place. <laughs> and if I see anything that incense me, I'll be off. <laughs> I'll be off. I'm still, I'm still an activist, to be perfectly honest with you. But yeah. I'm an activist now within the um, uh, House Proud, yeah, and House Proud community. And um, I speak to a lot of, uh, every every other month now, I speak to uh, gays from all over the um, country on Zoom. Yeah, I speak to older people all the time and what I try to do is, you know, uh, listen to their stories. We tell our stories and then we ask each other, what is it that we want now? And these are the conversations, you know, that we're having. And that's what I do now. I'm totally into uh, active in housing and active in house proud and yeah. active in um, the older LGBT uh, forums uh, to discussion because I want to hear what everyone is thinking and how they'd like to see themselves going forward as older LGBT people. And I, when you get older, we all like to tell our little tales. So half the meetings is uh, 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 taken up by people and their little stories. And we, we allow everyone to relive their little stories if that's what they yeah. want. As long as we're all sat there together, we're, we're, we're grand. I spoke to Lucia about what she sees as the priorities for the LGBTQ community right now. And she said that it's important that we pass the mantle of activism onto the younger generation. She is concerned about the rise of the right wing and the increase in anti-LGBT rhetoric and discriminatory policies making headway in the US, parts of Europe and around the world. As something of an outsider to the progress Ireland has made on these issues in the past decades, I asked how she felt we could work against this. And she said that simply the fight never stops and we can never stop fighting. In recording the interviews for this series, it's remarkable to me that despite the breadth of experience and the difference of the lives lived by the eight individuals who participated, there's one area of consistency. Each and every one said the same thing, that the most important thing that we can do to become a more compassionate and inclusive society is listen to the stories of those who've experienced marginalisation and face discrimination. So thank you for listening to this episode of Invisible Threads. For more information about LGBT Ireland, the National Support Service for LGBTQ people and the work which we do for older members of the LGBTQ community or to donate to help us continue our work, please visit lgbt.ie. 
If you have been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode and need to talk, LGBT Ireland operate the National LGBT Helpline, which is available on 1890 929 539. We have also included details of other organisations that offer advice, support and information in the show notes. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app. This project has received funding from the Government of Ireland's Launch Care Integration Fund 2019.